So it's good to be with you this morning. Again, as Joseph said, my name is Travis Kearns and I serve with the Three Rivers Baptist Association. That's a grouping of 90 churches that are just like yours, like-minded, love the Bible, love Jesus, want to see others uh, love the Bible and love Jesus. And we represent 40,000 people across the northern half of Greenville County, the western side of Spartanburg County. We give the most money uh, in this grouping of churches to missions and to education. We send out missionaries. Our churches send out missionaries all over the world. So it's a great place to be. Uh, as Joseph mentioned, I grew up here. I grew up in Taylor's, uh, just basically across Wade Hampton at First Baptist. Um, grew up across the street from my elementary school at Brook Glen. They went to Northwood, then went to Riverside. If there's any Greer High School people here, I'll pray for your soul. Um, having gone to Riverside, I have to hate Greer. That's just part of it. Um, the high school anyway. But then we left in 2001 and moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where we felt like strangers in a strange land. We lived there for 12 years from 2001, 2013. Did master's and PhD at uh, one of our Southern Baptist seminaries there. Taught there for about 10 years. I taught all the weird stuff. So I was the professor of weird at Southern Seminary. I teach war religions and cults and apologetics, all the, all the really weird stuff. And all of my academic training is in Mormonism. So I've studied the LDS Church for the last 26 years. It's really all I've done. So that's why we moved in 2013 to Salt Lake City. Uh, spent six years there on the mission field, overseeing all of our missionaries in Utah and in Idaho. And by God's grace, uh, the Spirit moved, and we saw 56 churches start in places in Utah and Idaho where there had never been a Christian church ever in the history of those towns. So we were very thankful to see that. In 2000, yeah, give God <laughs> praise for that. In 2019, God called us to the international mission field. We moved to Fort Worth, Texas uh, to serve. Y'all will get that in a second, too. <laughs> for two and a half years. If you've ever been to Texas or you're from Texas, you know it's a very different place than the rest of the U.S. Um, there's really no way to describe it. They think barbecue is made from cows. They don't know that barbecue is for burgers and steaks, or cows are for burgers and steaks. They think, that's, they think that's, that you use that for barbecue. That's just messed up. The sun has fried these people's brains. Uh, but came back here in January of this year and are excited to be back home and glad to be here to work with churches and pastors just like Joseph. Uh, that's half of my job is spending all day working with pastors uh, and staff members in our churches around this area. So we're glad to be back. But we're here this morning to talk about Jesus. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, turn to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at the entire chapter and ask a very simple question this morning. And the question we're going to ask is, does Jesus really matter? Now, you might think to yourself, well, my goodness, why in the world? Uh, we've come to church. We're here on a Sunday morning. Obviously, we think Jesus is important. But it's a question that we need to ask because it's one that's being asked not only by Christians, but it's being asked by people around the world. Is Jesus really that important? Does he really matter? In fact, people have been asking this question since Nicodemus asked Jesus a lot of questions in John chapter 3. It's been asked for 2,000 years. And the basic reason we ask this question is because if Jesus does matter, that has implications for our lives, has implications for how we act, for what we do, for the ways that we talk, even for the ways that we drive. It has implications for everything. If Jesus does not matter if he's not that important, then let's go find something else to do on Sunday mornings, right? Surely we can find something better than sitting around talking about somebody who doesn't matter. 
So Revelation 5 will answer uh, this question for us, and we'll answer it in two ways. So if you're able, stand with me and let's read through Revelation 5. We'll read through the entire chapter and then go back and look uh, at each verse kind of phrase by phrase. So Revelation 5, John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven or on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Lord, let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us this morning at the feet of Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. Well, as soon as I said, turn to the book of Revelation, you may have immediately thought to yourself, oh boy, here we go. Here comes the weird stuff. Surely in there, if, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so as a kid of the 80s, anytime I heard the book of Revelation mentioned, I would think to myself, man, there's got to be locusts with laser beams. There's got to be some M1 Abrams tanks in there. There's got to be a Russian ruler, right? There's got to be all this stuff, and his name has to be Nikolai Carpathia. And just all these crazy things that go on in Revelation. And there's even got to be, you know, to some degree, almost like people from Indiana Jones, the first movie at the end of it, when their skin's melting because they see the Ark of the Covenant. There's got to be all this crazy stuff because Revelation, right, of the 66 books in the Bible, there's 65 normal ones and then there's Revelation. And it's like the weirdo book. But as the professor of weird, having done that for 15 years, this should be the one that I like, right? Well, Revelation's not the weird book. In fact, it's not weird at all. There's not 65 normal ones and one weird one. There's just 65 normal ones. Revelation is nothing more than really three distinct things. The first thing that you see in Revelation 1 through 3 is Jesus speaking directly to seven churches. And he's telling them how they're doing. That's all you get in Revelation 1 through 3. Revelation 4 and 5 are a vision of the throne room of heaven. 
And then Revelation 6 to 22 tells us about the return of Christ. That's usually what we think about when we think about the book of Revelation. We think about the end times. Interestingly, a lot of people have talked about a lot of things when it comes to the return of Christ. But Revelation 6 to 22 tell us two specific things about the return of Jesus. Number one, he will return at some point in the future in bodily form. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we don't know when. That's it. Everything else is speculation or taking five or six or seven or ten different verses, putting them together, putting on an aluminum foil hat, squinting one eye and holding up one leg and trying to just throw all this together and figure it all out. So Jesus will come back in bodily form in the future, and we don't know when. But as I mentioned, Revelation 4 and 5 are a throne room vision that John has, and Revelation 5 just continues that vision. So let's look and see what John would say to us. The first thing we're going to see in Revelation 5, 1 to 4, is that without Jesus, we have no hope. We have no chance of hope whatsoever. So look at Revelation 5.1. It starts out, the writer says, I. Who is this person? This is John the Apostle. The same John that wrote the Gospel. The same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John also wrote Revelation. In fact, he has, except for Paul, John has more information in the New Testament than any other writer. He's the second most used writer in the New Testament. He's also one of the guys who was with Jesus the vast majority of the time that Jesus was on the earth. So you get Jesus spending the majority of his time with one person. Anybody remember who that was? Starts with a P and ends in eater. (laughs) Peter, good, y'all got that one. He then spends a little bit less time with a group of three. Peter, and then a guy named James, and then our writer, John. Then he spends a little bit less time with an additional nine, forming a group of 12. That's the original 12 apostles. And then he spends the minority of his time doing ministry in big public settings. So John is with him a lot of the time. So this is who the I is. So John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. First of all, who is the him seated on the throne? This is God the Father. Now, it's important, though, that John notes that he's seated on the throne. Anytime you think about somebody sitting on the throne, we usually think about royalty, right? We think about a king or we think about a queen. What does it mean? Now, I I mentioned this in the first service. I'll say the same thing again. I don't know if y'all are used to talking back or not, so I apologize to Joseph. I'll do it again if they talk back next week. It's my fault. But I want y'all to talk back, right? So if I ask a question, you have to respond or we're going to be here for a long time. We will not beat the Methodists to lunch today. So when he says, seated on the throne, we think about royalty. What does it mean when a royal ruler is seated on the throne? What does that mean? This is where y'all talk back. What does it mean? It means authority, control. That person is reigning and ruling over his or her kingdom, right? And when the person seated on the throne, the king or the queen seated on the throne, with the control and authority that the throne brings and the position brings, when that person issues a proclamation or says something, that's how it is. So think about that in terms of Revelation 5.1. Here we have God the Father seated on the throne. What this means to us is, is that God is from beginning of time to the end of time, seated on the throne, reigning and ruling over sovereign command of not just the earth, not just this galaxy, but everything that was created. That means that God is in sovereign control of your life. 
Now this should be comforting to you because what this means is is that nothing that happens to you takes God by surprise. Nothing. If you woke up this morning and something was going wrong in your life, God did not think to Himself, oh boy, what are we going to do? I didn't see that coming. We need to turn to plan B. There is no such thing for God as plan B. There's just the plan. Right? So God is on the throne, reigning and ruling, and in His right hand, John mentions, is a book. Why does John mention the right hand? Because in the ancient world, it's the hand of power and authority. So God, seated on the throne, reigning and ruling over sovereign command of everything created, sovereign command of everything, in His hand of power and authority, there's a book. Now, I have a, what I call a type AAA personality. If you have one, you know what I mean. I'm, I'm hearing some affirmation here, right? When I eat french fries, I'm admitting I have a problem. I line them up longest to shortest before I eat them. It's a sickness. I admit that freely, but on the 12-step program, I'm only admitting I'm not going any further. That's just how my brain works. So when I see that there's a book in God's hand of power and authority, while He's seated on the throne reigning and ruling, my first question becomes, what's the book? What's in the book? I want to read the book. It's obviously very important. New Testament scholars tell us that this book is the plan for all of creation, for everything that has, does, and will ever happen to the smallest of details. Now notice also, and this is important, at the end of verse 1, it says the book is written inside and on the back. Now in the ancient world, when a contract was written, it was written on a single sheet of paper called a papyrus, a piece of very thin animal skin. The details would be written on the inside. That piece of paper would be rolled up, and then a piece of wax would be put on it, heated, so the drop of wax would be put on there, and then a seal, a signet ring usually was placed on that, and a summary of the details that were written on the inside, a summary was written on the back of it, on the outside of that scroll. The reason there was a summary and the details, summary on the outside, details on the inside, the reason that happened is that so when the seal was broken is you could tell if the summary or the details had been changed by comparing the two. But the summary would perfectly match the details just in shorter form. New Testament scholars tell us that the details, again, are the plans for everything that have happened, everything that does happen, everything that will ever happen. And guess what the summary is? You're holding it. Can y'all imagine, if this is the summary, what the details must look like? Just imagine. Then look at verse 2. And I saw a strong angel. Oh, and by the way, in the end of verse 1, it's sealed up with seven seals. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. This is a perfect book, sealed up perfectly. Now verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Let's stop for a second. When you think about an angel, what do you think about? Again, as a kid of the 80s, I think about a little chubby European baby with wings, with a harp, trying to sell me toilet paper. <laughs> Angel soft toilet paper. Or if you've got, maybe you're a kid of the 60s and 70s, you might think about Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. Right? Kind of this hapless, hopeless, kind of happy-go-lucky guy. But the same thing holds true for these little European chubby babies sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, selling us toilet paper. 
The Bible, though, never presents angels in that way. In fact, there are two specific descriptions of angels given in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. One is the cherubim. These are beings covered with eyeballs. Why don't they sell us toilet paper? That would be weird. The other is the seraphim. These are literally beings made of fire. So you've got beings covered with eyeballs and beings made of fire. That's how the Bible specifically describes angels to us. This also says it's a strong angel. This is a Clemson linebacker. It can't be a Gamecock linebacker because it specifically says strong. <laughs> if you're a fan of the school in Columbia, we will share the gospel with you later. Yes, you too can be saved. There's a reason that poets of old wrote about heaven with orange and purple and hell with garnet and black. You can see where I stand automatically, right? I have no apology for that whatsoever. We won't talk about Kentucky just because there's nothing to talk about. See, I told you, when you give the guy the microphone for a longer time, you never know what's coming. But I know he's going to have it at the end, so I've got to be a little careful. So it's a strong angel. This is a guy who can bench press 500 pounds and can run a 40-yard dash in less than five seconds. This is a big old boy. right? And it's a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. When we think about an angel speaking, sometimes we think about the way Joseph was imitating the song earlier. We think about an elevator meeting between Mickey Mouse, Mike Tyson, and Michael Jackson. This high-pitched, nasally, kind of less-than-weak voice. But here you get a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. What does he say? Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Even the angels want to know what's inside this book. This is serious business. Look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So what Revelation 5.3 tells us is this. It should remind you of Genesis chapter 1 when God creates everything in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Revelation 5.3 tells us this. Nothing created can give you hope. Nothing created can fully explain God to us. Nothing created is the mediator between humanity and God. And what's the result? Verse 4, John says, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So what's happening here? Remember, John is the guy, other than Peter, who spends the most time with Jesus while he's on the earth. Surely, by this point, John knows who Jesus really is. But New Testament commentators tell us that even here in the book of Revelation, which is the last book written in the New Testament, that even at this point, John may not fully understand who Jesus is yet. John saw Jesus get crucified. John saw him buried. John saw him rise from the dead. John saw him ascend to heaven. John saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And even at this point, he still may not truly get who Jesus is. If John, in that situation, doesn't fully understand who Jesus is, how much harder do we need to work to understand who Jesus is? It's interesting that all John can do is just cry. Because all he wants is somebody worthy enough to explain God to us, to take the book and explain God or what God wants us to do. But all he can do is weep. 
So Revelation 5, 1-4 tell us that without Jesus we have no hope. If you place your trust, your faith, your hope in a created thing, your ultimate end will be weeping and just loss. Now you might say, well, hope's not that big of a thing. Well, we misunderstand the word hope sometimes. When you, when you talk about hope in Revelation 5, it's a different type of hope than saying, I hope it rains today. That's a fleeting, temporary hope. Revelation 5 is talking about permanent, everlasting, eternal hope. If you place your hope in something created to get you to the afterlife, to spend eternity in heaven, to spend eternity in worship around the throne, then you will, if you place your faith in something created, you will find yourself weeping and at a loss. There can be no eternal hope in created things. We place our hope, though, in created things. We place our hope in sports teams, or in family, or in friends, or in church, or in individual people. But all of those things are created and will let you down. Not only temporarily, but eternally. But there's good news. And the good news is found in Revelation 5, 5 to 14. Now what I'm going to do, beginning in Revelation 5, 5, is insert a word. Jerry Vines, the former pastor at First Baptist in Jacksonville, Florida, used to talk about something he called sanctified imagination. We're going to use some sanctified imagination, insert in Revelation 5.5 at the beginning, the best word found in Scripture. The best word found in Scripture may surprise you. It's not Jesus. The best word found in Scripture is but. Here's an entire summary of the Old Testament. The Israelites were dumb. But God showed mercy. Without the but, there's no God showing mercy. The rest of the New Testament, the entire world was dumb. But God sent Christ. Without the but, there's no sending of Christ. So without but, there's no Jesus. So Revelation 5.5, inserting that word but, says this. One of the elders said to me, can I put this in South Carolinian for us? What he says. Hey boy, quit crying. Wipe them tears up. Right? That's Revelation 5.5 5 in redneck for us. It says, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So what we see in Revelation 5, 5 to 14 is this. With Jesus, we have complete hope. We can stop crying because we've found something that gives us hope one of the elders we'll talk about who that is in a minute but says stop crying stop it because the lion from the tribe of judah the root of david who is this who is this roaring conquering champion that's from the tribe of judah who is this person who's of the family lineage of david there's only one and that one is jesus himself so, we can insert that. We can say, stop weaving. Behold, Jesus has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Jesus can explain God to us, can give us hope, and can break the perfect number of seals. Look at verse 6. Now, this verse 6 is where we can become charismatic, and it's okay. I'm giving you permission. Now, y'all start running up and down the aisles. We might have to kind of calm things down a little bit. But look, I said this is the first service. I've said it a hundred times. I'm a Baptist born and Baptist bred. When I die, I'll be a Baptist dead. 
but I consider myself a Baptocostal. It's okay to get excited during worship. It's okay. Right? David danced. Now, Baptists don't do that. We do interpretive movement, which is both feet on the floor and hips swaying a little bit. Right? David danced. Paul talks about lifting holy hands. But I can tell you, having seen it in hundreds and hundreds of churches, that during the music portion of a worship service, most people in the congregation act like the founding members of the convention of Eeyore lovers from Winnie the Pooh. Y'all remember Eeyore? Thanks for noticing me. When we sing songs like Amazing Grace, that's an incredible song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And when we sing it, though, it's like Eeyore. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And we look dead. Yet we go to football games and NASCAR races and kids' events and grandkids' events and we scream and yell like idiots. We come to church and we're dead as a doornail. There's something wrong. Revelation 5-6 corrects that. John says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. Now, you ready? Here comes the charismatic part. Use your imagination for a second. The throne room of heaven. Here's God seated on the throne over here, reigning and ruling in command of the universe. Over here, John tells us, are four living creatures. That represents the animals, all of God's created animals. And... The elders, that's God's chosen people, that's the church. Over here is God, over here is God's creation and the church, and what's in between them? A lamb standing. Who's the lamb? It's Jesus. Why is it important that he's standing? Because he's actively mediating on our behalf to the Father. Now here's the real charismatic part. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us for who we are, for our sin. He looks at us through the standing, dead man walking Lamb of God through Jesus. It's how he sees us. That should make you excited. If it doesn't, let me introduce you to Jesus this morning. We yell and scream at all kind of stuff in our lives and we come here and we're dead and none of that stuff we yell and scream at in our lives died on your behalf. I love Clemson football. Dabo did not die on my behalf. And if he did, it wouldn't have eternal consequences. You might love your family or your friends or your car or whatever it may be, but none of that stuff, if it died on your behalf, has eternal consequences. Only the death of Christ has eternal consequences because of His death on your behalf. And right here in Revelation 5-6, He is standing, mediating between the Father and us. When God looks at us, He sees Christ. Notice also this lamb standing has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns represent power and authority. Eyes represent wisdom and knowledge. Jesus has perfect power, perfect authority, perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge. Who's the only being other than Jesus described in that way in the history of the universe? It's the one seated on the throne. Revelation 5-6 tells us that Jesus and God are one and the same. 
Look at 5.7. And He came, Jesus came, and took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Jesus walks over to the throne. He doesn't say, may I borrow that? He doesn't say, could you show that to me? He doesn't pull out His library card and say, can I check this out for a few weeks? He takes it. Now the last time we get a vision of the throne room like this is in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet is very upset. His friend, the king uh, Uzziah, has died. He goes to the temple to pray. And when he goes to the temple to pray, he has a vision of the throne room. And he sees God seated on the throne. And as soon as he sees God seated on the throne, Isaiah says, quote, Woe is me, for I am dead. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is worried that even seeing a vision of the throne room will kill him. And check this out from Isaiah 6 as well. Those seraphim, the flaming angels, are in that chapter. And one of them flies over to Isaiah with a coal. He's taken from the altar with tongs. And he burns Isaiah's lips off. And Isaiah 6, 8 says, God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. The last thing you want to do after your lips have been burned off is talk. But God asks a question, and Isaiah, with the smell of burning flesh in his nostrils and the pain of burning lips completely gone from his face, answers immediately. But what's interesting about it is when the seraphim flies over to the altar to get the coal to burn Isaiah's lips off, the angel reaches into the altar with tongs and pulls the coal out. Now the angel's made of fire. The altar's not going to burn his hand. Why does he reach in with tongs? Because the angel is not holy and the altar is. Here, it's not the altar. Here, it's the throne. It's not an offering to God, it's God. And Jesus doesn't walk up with tongs to grab the book. He walks up and takes it. Notice what happens when he takes the book in 5.8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. What are they doing? They're worshiping. They're saying, thanks be to God. And it says that each one has a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As a believer, every time you pray, your prayer, so to speak, lights a new candle in heaven. Your prayers are the aroma of the throne room of heaven. And they go into a bowl made of gold. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song. What are we going to do in heaven? We don't have to go with Mercy Me from a few years ago and say, I can only imagine. We know what we're going to do. The text tells us right here. We're going to sing. Now, I was a youth pastor for two years before we went to Louisville. It's the longest 20 years of my life. And some of you will get that in a minute. And when I would talk about heaven and the afterlife for believers and singing and worshiping around the throne, the youth would often say, that's going to be so boring. What are we going to do without Nintendo and PlayStation and stuff to do? That's going to be so boring. I don't think you get it. There's Jesus right there. There He is. You could be standing beside Charles Spurgeon on one side and John Wesley on the other, and right in front of you is Peter. And guess how much you're going to care about those three standing right there? Zero. Because there's Jesus. We'll be on our faces around the throne in amazing, heavenly, perfect, eternal worship. What are we going to be singing? 
Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Now, why are you worthy? John says, thanks for asking. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Stop for a second. Jesus was slain and it did something. In verse 9, what did it do? It purchased for God with the blood of Christ any person who would place faith and trust in Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, not Christian by just cultural standards, but a believer, a follower of Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus today, you are not your own. Somebody else owns you. You no longer have authority over your life. Jesus does. Why? Because he died for you. Also notice the end of verse 9. Now, y'all don't tell anybody. This will just be our secret. Because it says men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's going to be people in heaven that aren't English-speaking Americans. Shh, don't tell anybody. We'll just keep that to ourselves. Interestingly, just a few years ago, there was a massive shift in Christianity around the globe. Prior to just five or six years ago, there were more Christians above the equator than below. And there were more missionaries sent from above the equator to below than from below to above. But about five or six years ago, that completely turned upside down. Now there are more Christians below the equator, think South America, Africa, than above, think U.S. and Europe. And more missionaries are sent from below the equator to above than from above to below. There are more people in Christianity that don't speak English and don't look like us than speak English and look like us. God is moving around the world. Do not let the news in the U.S. fool you into thinking that things are awful and can't get and could possibly not get any worse. God is moving in ways around the world that we could never imagine. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is? It's in China, where Christianity is illegal. You can get killed for being an outspoken, evangelizing Christian. That's where it's growing the fastest. God is moving. And then look at verse 10. And you have made them, those for whom you died, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign on the earth. Do not believe the lie that Satan is in current control of the earth. If you believe that, he has won in your brain. God is on the throne, not the devil. God is reigning and ruling, not Satan. And those for whom he died, guess what? We are a kingdom and priests, and we reign. Why? Because we have the gospel to move it forward on the earth. Do not believe the lie that Satan's in control. There is no such thing as bad news. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 11. Then I looked, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So how many angels, how many creatures, how many elders? A bunch. More than John could possibly count. And what are they doing? They're saying with a loud voice. They're singing again. All right, now, I want you to look at me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look down and read verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12 directly. I'm going to count. So you've got to look at me, all right? And when I count, when I'm done, you're going to tell me how many, okay? Verse 12, sing with a loud voice. 
Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How many? Perfect worship. There's a perfect book with a perfect God, with a perfect Lamb, with perfect wisdom, authority, knowledge, power, ruling sovereignly over the earth, and there's perfect worship to go along with it. Look at verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now this is an interesting verse. It's a very interesting verse. Because when you think about things singing, created things singing, humans is not too hard to imagine. Things in the heavens. We usually think about birds. It's not hard to imagine a bird singing. Things on the earth. It's not hard to imagine things on the earth singing, like lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my, right? Gamecocks don't sing, they screech. Tigers screech, sing. But things under the earth. Y'all know what a night crawler is? A big earthworm you fish with, right? Fish love them. Earthworms don't have large mouths. In fact, they're very small. But imagine Revelation 5.13 in heaven, earthworms singing praise to Christ. Now again, we can imagine bigger things like birds and things like that, but imagine a butterfly and an earthworm singing praise to Christ. That's the picture we get of heaven. And what are they saying? To Him who sits on the throne, to God, and to the Lamb, to Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. They're singing to Christ and to God because God sent Christ who died to change creation. Verse 14, and the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, the elders fell down and worshiped. What's the only thing that the four living creatures can say? It's done. There's nothing else to do. If you believe that you can be saved based on what you do, animals know better than you do. That's what Revelation 5.14 tells us. Earthworms are smarter than you if you think you can work your way to salvation. Because they say, Amen, which simply means it's done. There's nothing else to be done. And the elders, God's people, fell down and they worshipped. So what does Revelation 5 tell us about Jesus, whether or not He matters? Without Jesus, Revelation 5 tells us we have no hope. We have no hope for eternity. And the follow-up question very simply is this, are you a Revelation 5, 1-4 person where you have no hope? Are you a Revelation 5, 5 to 14 person where you have complete hope, all the hope you could ever dream of? If you're a Revelation 5, 1 to 4 person, you're sitting here this morning, you're listening online, I want to encourage you strongly to consider today what the Bible says. The Bible, which is God's perfect, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word, says this, we were created to live in perfect harmony with Him. He put us into a garden, gave us everything we wanted, and all he said was, don't touch that tree. And as soon as we get a shot, we go straight for it. We touch it, and the whole world gets turned upside down because prior to Genesis 3, you have God ruling over man and woman who rule over the animals. And what happens in Genesis 3 is the serpent goes to the woman who goes to the man who blames it all on God. The whole thing gets turned upside down. So God places us in 
relationship with Him and a perfect harmony with Him, and we mess it all up. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says we get paid for that sin. We get paid to do what God tells us not to do. And the payment is physical and spiritual death. You can't escape physical death, but you can escape spiritual death. And the Bible says that is through placing your faith and your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Because Paul says he is the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And not in a created Christ. Having lived in Utah for six years, having studied the LDS church for 26 years total, I can tell you that they believe in a Jesus who is created. That is not Jesus. That's some guy they call Jesus. Joseph Smith cannot save you. Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism, cannot save you. Muhammad cannot save you. Science cannot save you. Only Jesus can save. Period. You place your faith and your trust in Christ. And Paul says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved from that spiritual death and experience eternity with God in heaven. Without placing faith and trust in Christ, when you close your eyes in death and open them in the afterlife, the first words out of the mouth of Christ are the last words you'll ever hear from Jesus. And that's, depart from me, you work of iniquity, for I never knew you. Enter now into eternal damnation. It's from death to the afterlife. When you close your eyes in death, will you be Revelation 5, 1 to 4? Or Revelation 5, 5 to 14, and have hope because of Christ. What will you do with that gospel message of Jesus today? Pray with me. Lord, we ask today, God, for your word. We are thankful for what you have given us in Scripture. God, we're thankful that you sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. We're thankful for this perfect Lamb who's standing between us and the throne. Lord, today, if there is one here or one watching online who has never placed faith and trust in you, who has not, as Paul says, confessed with their mouths Jesus' Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead, God, change that person's heart from stone to flesh. Regenerate that heart so that that person can see you for who you are, can be still and know that you are God, and can call on the name of Christ, begging for forgiveness and knowing that that forgiveness will be given. For those of us here who are believers in Christ, who have placed faith and trust in His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Lord, give us conviction and compassion to share the gospel with unbelievers around us. Give us an opportunity even today to do so. We thank You for who You are, for what You've done for us in Christ. And we ask these things in His name. Amen.